Welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner, bringing you readings from these publications. The Arkansas Democrat Gazette, the Boston Globe, the Kansas City Star, the Kansas City Community Voice. There will be an op-ed from the Baltimore Afro-American, and I'll wrap up today's program with a book review from Kirkus Reviews. But I'm going to get started with some news and information. The title of this story is... Affirmative action still an option at West Point, but Supreme Court likely to have final say. It was written by Philip Elliott, published July 6, 2023, and it appeared at Time Magazine's Time.com website. Amid the flurry of dramatic rulings the Supreme Court's nine justices handed down last month right before ditching D.C. until October, there was an underappreciated footnote that merits a second reading. In the blockbuster decision that essentially ended the use of race in college admissions, Chief Justice John Roberts gave U.S. military academies a carve-out. Put simply, West Point can keep using affirmative action, but Harvard cannot. And students of color worried that the challenges of getting into their preferred school now seem insurmountable might want to consider how they look in uniform. The rationale, co-signed by the court's six-strong conservative majority, carries inherent problems and there is little doubt the ruling will be revisited. In the meantime, it seems as if the court was simply punting with the June 29th ruling on something that clearly is going to define part of its legacy. No military academy is a party to these cases, however, and none of the courts below address the propriety of race-based admission systems in that context, Roberts wrote in a note at the bottom of page 30 of 237, tacitly acknowledging and then dismissing arguments that affirmative action helped diversify the military's leadership. This opinion also does not address the issue in light of the potentially distinct interests that military academies may present. Those distinct interests, namely having a leadership core in the national security space that reflects all parts of the society it is built to defend, may be worth considering under different circumstances, the justices conceded. But as it stands, the court essentially bought for now the argument that issues facing military academies were beyond the scope of cases about Harvard and the University of North Carolina, and that increasing diversity in our armed forces may be in the national interest. Implied in that posture is the notion that increasing diversity in other, bigger parts of society is not. Got it? The elite military academies are already some of the most selective institutions in the country and create a pipeline for a generation of national security leadership. Fewer than one in five applicants get invited, and the application process is one of the toughest out there even before that. While anyone with $85 can apply to Harvard, acceptance rate 4%, applicants to four of the five academies need to persuade their member of Congress to nominate them for a finite number of slots. That, of course, comes with its own political dynamics, further complicating the screening process for what is essentially the toughest human resources interview in federal service. For anyone who's been around Washington for a minute, the ruling didn't come as a complete surprise. For good or ill, anything linked to the military is seen in some corners of D.C.'s elite class as sacrosanct. Budget cuts at the Pentagon are all but verboten and even fiscal hawks' dens. Whenever there are talks of across-the-board reductions in spending, everyone trips over themselves to point out that they're talking about non-defense spending, and the good folks in the military-industrial complex shouldn't lose any sleep. 
It's a combination of respect for the troops and fear of the defense lobbyists on K Street who are quite adept at casting any skepticism about military spending as disloyalty. This court's decidedly conservative tilt was not about to wade into that space at the moment. At the Capitol, the ruling sparked predictable outrage among liberals and giddy gloating from conservatives. Without much real recourse, Democrats bemoaned the double track that, to channel Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson's dissent, values racial diversity in bunkers but not in boardrooms. To their dismay, liberals read the ruling as telling the country that diversity matters only when it comes time to send men and women into war zones. And it further tells persons of color that they would do well to practice their marching skills if they want to enjoy any advantage that affirmative action may offer. Across the aisle, Senator Roger Wicker, the top Republican on the Senate Armed Services Committee, has plans to ban remaining affirmative action programs as an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act. House Republicans have similar plans to also eliminate the Pentagon's diversity officer, funding for diversity, equity, and inclusion programs, and a review of existing programs in the name of combating perceived wokeness. From 30,000 feet above the gorgeous campuses, the student populations at the academies have made strides in better reflecting their neighbors they'll spend their careers protecting. At the U.S. Military Academy in West Point, New York, the ranks of cadets who identified as a racial or ethnic minority went from 20% in 2000 to 36% in 2021. At the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland, that number rose from 19% to 37%. There are similar stories in the data from the Air Force and Coast Guard academies. Still, enlisted and commissioned military members remain distinct worlds demographically. The military's leadership is still overwhelmingly white and male in an institution that historically has been an instrument for social change. Roughly 90% of generals and admirals are white, although Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is working on leveling that out. All of that explains why there's a good chance the court will find itself dealing with the specific issue of affirmative action at military academies in the future. Military leaders know that having military academies train diverse cohorts of graduates stands to pay dividends for decades. Now that talent pipeline is back on conservative lawmakers' agendas, and not necessarily in a good way. That was the article titled, Affirmative Action Still an Option at West Point, but Supreme Court Likely to Have Final Say. It was written by Philip Elliott, published June 6, 2023, and it appeared at Time Magazine's Time.com website. My next reading is titled, California NAACP Conference Honors 1968 Olympic Heroes. It was originally published in the Oakland Post newspaper, but was reprinted in the BlackPressUSA.com website on July 5, 2023. It was written by Antonio Ray Harvey. The California-slash-Hawaii State Conference of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People held its 11th annual Legacy Hall of Fame induction ceremony. The event took place on June 24th at the Sheraton Hotel in downtown Sacramento. At the event, the NAACP paid tribute to 1968 Olympic medalists Dr. Tommy Smith and Dr. John Carlos and 1967 Olympic Project for Human Rights co-organizers Dr. Harry Edwards and Dr. Kenneth Noel. These men were honored for their contributions to the civil rights movement in the 1960s. All the honorees except Smith were present at the ceremony. Smith's friend, Durrell Good, accepted the award on his behalf. 
If you receive this award, it exemplifies greatness in your career, whether it's in politics, whether it's in business, or whether it be activism, said Rick Callender, president of the California-Hawaii NAACP. I am sure you can see why our current inductees are receiving this honor. It just shows you what an incredible impact they had on the lives of everyone in their fight for civil rights, he added. After placing first and third in the 200-meter dash in the Olympic Games in Mexico City in 1968, sprinters Smith and Carlos ascended the medal stand to receive their respective gold and bronze medals with second-place silver medalist Peter Norman of Australia. During that historic moment, the men led a protest to draw attention to racial discrimination and other negative conditions affecting black people in America and across the globe. Shoeless, donning black socks to represent black poverty and wearing beads to protest violence against African Americans, the athletes raised a black glove fist to show support for black and oppressed people. Smith wore a black scarf around his neck to show black pride. The iconic image of their stance on the podium and their bold display of the black power movement's most recognizable symbol, the raised fist, was seen around the world. That moment changed the racial dynamics of international sports forever. After their stand against racial injustice, Smith and Carlos never relinquished their medals, even though the International Olympic Committee, IOC, prohibits protests at the Games. They were immediately asked to leave the Games in Mexico City. Carlos said it was a widespread myth for decades that the IOC took his and Smith's medals. They never took our medals. It was pure propaganda, Carlos told California Black Media. They were saying for years that they took our medals, but what it really was was a fear factor. They said it to try to instill fear into every black athlete after 1968. Carlos Smith, Edwards, and Noel were associated with San Jose State College's track and field team in the mid-1960s. Facing discrimination as students on the campus, Edwards and Noel orchestrated rallies, protests, and social justice events to attract African-American student-athletes and fellow campus activists. Noel and Edwards started the United Black Students for Action, UBSA. They both noticed that black student-athletes could use their fame to elevate civil rights issues. They both converted UBSA into the Olympic Project for Human Rights, OPHR, a civil rights organization created to boycott the 1968 Summer Olympics. On October 16, 1968, Smith won the 200-meter race in a world record time of 19.83 seconds. Norman finished second with a time of 20.06 seconds, and Carlos was third with a time of 20.1 seconds. There were several people who were really important in our lives and involved in the struggle too, said Noel, who was known as a gifted middle-distance runner. One of the things that I will say about the fight for human rights is we endeavored to change the paradigm of what it means to be a champion athlete, not only to perform on the field, but to get involved in politics and support activities in our communities. Edwards, an emeritus professor of sociology at the University of California, Berkeley, and former scholar athlete at San Jose State College, today San Jose State University, encouraged African-American athletes to protest the 1968 Summer Olympics in Mexico City with the support of the Project for Human Rights. Edwards, a longtime consultant for the San Francisco 49ers, is a proud and committed social activist. In 2016, Edwards supported then-49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick's controversial protest against excessive use of force by police officers. Kaepernick took a knee during the playing of the national anthem before each game as a way of bringing attention to police brutality against black people in the United States. After the first time Kaepernick knelt, 
Etrus told him to give him his uniform immediately because his action would be a monumental moment in sports and representative of the new wave of civil rights. Edwards sent the garment to the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. to be displayed alongside Carlos Smith and Muhammad Ali's exhibits. He felt strong enough about it to put his career and life on the line. Look at the number of death threats and other things that happened to him. He put it all on the line in order to make that statement, Edwards said. He was saying, we are better than this. He started a movement that swept the world. The Legacy Hall of Fame honors outstanding community members who have fought tirelessly to advance the civil rights movement while also creating vital funding for local unit capacity building, youth leadership programs, and next-generation leadership programs and initiatives, according to the California-Hawaii NAACP. One photograph that goes with the story is that of a statue of John Carlos and Tommy Smith. It recreates the moment the two sprinters raised their fists in a black power salute on the victory stand at the 1968 Summer Olympics in Mexico City. The statue is on the campus of San Jose State University in California. That was the article, California NAACP Conference Honors 1968 Olympics Heroes. It was written by Antonio Ray Harvey. It was originally published in the Oakland Post newspaper, and reprinted at the BlackPressUSA.com website on July 5th, 2023. My next reading is from the op-ed pages of the Baltimore Afro-American newspaper and its Afro.com website. The title of this op-ed piece is Why Black Folk Need Holidays. It was written by Aswad Walker and was published June 15th, 2023. For some... Holidays are just days off work. For others, many of them are considered sacred and holy. But all holidays were created by a specific group of people for a specific reason. Holidays were meant to be vehicles for teaching, highlighting, and passing down specific values important to the life and well-being of a people. A holiday is an annual event that makes sure the group that created it never forgets the value that day, week, month, or season represents. And sure, folks who aren't members of the group who created the holiday can take part in the festivities and even celebrate and adopt the values it highlights. But make no mistake, holidays are group-specific, no matter how much they have become part of the lives of others. For example, St. Patrick's Day was originally celebrated in Ireland as a cultural and religious celebration with religious services and feasts in honor of St. Patrick and what he represents the arrival of Christianity to that people. When Irish immigrants brought their special day with them to America, it was eventually observed by anyone who chose to. The Day of the Dead, Dia de los Muertos, goes back to the Aztecs, who dedicated an entire month to honoring their ancestors. Halloween, a day some assume was taken from the Day of the Dead, actually traces its roots to the ancient Celtic festival of Samhain, capital S-A-M-H-A-I-N, a pagan religious celebration to welcome the harvest at the end of summer when people would light bonfires and wear costumes to ward off ghosts. Like I said, holidays are group-specific. The problem is, if that's true, where are the holidays created by and for black folk? What holidays celebrate values important to us? And sure, there are values passed down via the existing holidays that we take advantage of, But for us to truly be healthy as a people, 
We need to create our own holidays and use existing ones in ways that hammer home specific values and principles that represent us and our culture. Memorial Day. Y'all already know black folk founded the first Memorial Day and did so in honor of black soldiers who gave their lives to free enslave black people and win the Civil War. That kind of focus makes Memorial Day more than just a day banks are closed or an opportunity to picnic or hold a cookout. A value-focused Memorial Day would find tangible and symbolic ways to honor the myriad of souls who lived and died in service to our people over the eons. And to extend our memorial to include victims of generations of state-sanctioned violence against our communities. Martin Luther King Day has to be about more than two dueling parades and barbecues. And it feels like folk are moving to make it more, and that's a good thing. If we focused on the values most evident in MLK's life, we might move away from the erroneous idea that he lived his life assured that his efforts would not be in vain. No, Martin Luther King made choices to serve and fight with no guarantee of victory. Thinking and teaching that does a disservice to him and the courage and commitment he had to muster to honor God's call on his life. It also takes us off the hook to make those tough decisions about the way we live our lives and the commitment we either give or don't to those things we say are important to us. Why? Because we put Martin Luther King and others on an unreachable pedestal and convince ourselves there is no way we could have that kind of impact and influence on the world because we're not him. But he was human, like us. He had challenges and doubts and failures, like us. He pushed through, like we all can do. Especially if we regularly spotlight those values central to Martin Luther King's faith walk. Martin Luther King was all about service, fighting injustice, honoring God's call on his life, commitment, and perseverance. African Liberation Day. On May 24, 1963, during the formation of the Organization of African Unity Summit, where 32 African heads of state were in attendance, Kwame Nkrumah stated, We all want a united Africa, united not only in our concept of what unity connotates, but united in our common desire to move forward together in dealing with all the problems that can best be solved only on a continental basis. With this goal in mind, Africa Liberation Day is celebrated by various countries on the African continent, Europe, the Caribbean, Asia, and the United States annually on May 25th. It reflects our history, honors our ancestors, and celebrates our victories of moving towards a liberated Africa from slavery, colonialism, neocolonialism, and imperialism. Initially declared Africa Freedom Day on April 15, 1958, after Kwame Nkrumah held the first conference of independent states in Accra, Ghana, it was moved to May 25th in 1965 by Emperor Haile Selassie to honor the historic charter of the Organization of African Unity. Today, this commemoration of freedom from foreign control and unity for all of Africa's people is still going strong as there is much more work to be done for the liberation of our people throughout the world. Kwanzaa Dr. Malana Karinga literally created Kwanzaa for the purpose of getting black folk to celebrate and incorporate proven ancient African values, seven of them. Umoja, unity, Kujichakulia, self-determination, Ujima, collective work and responsibility, Ujamaa, cooperative economics, Nia, purpose, Kuumba, 
creativity, and Imani, faith. As a people, we just need to collectively use Kwanzaa for the purposes it's intended for. Some groups and organizations have taken it upon themselves to put those Kwanzaa principles into action year-round. Juneteenth, University of Houston history professor Dr. Gerald Horn has a book that should be the centerpiece of all Juneteenth celebrations, parades, activities, speeches, etc. going forward. The book, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of American Fascism, provides documented evidence that Juneteenth is actually a celebration of predominantly black soldiers literally going to war with Texas and Louisiana plantation owners to secure our freedom after General Granger read off that famous order and owners of the enslaved refused to let their property go. Horn tells the story of what he calls a second Juneteenth of equal significance. But suffice to say, both deal with black people exhibiting courage and fighting for our freedom. Juneteenth celebrations with that kind of focus would have us identifying injustices to which we are called today to free ourselves and our people from. Malcolm X Day I'm realizing that one value central to all these black holidays is courage. Brother Malcolm, El-Hajj Malik El-Shabazz, courageously preached truth to power. He courageously faced his own demons and emerged a changed man. He courageously committed himself to a life of personal growth and development. He courageously stood against and called out black leaders who he believed were shortchanging black people. He courageously spoke out against the tactic of nonviolence and instead told black people to do what black parents have been telling black children forever. Be courteous and respectful to everyone. But if anyone puts their hands on you or your loved ones, make sure they never think about doing it again. It would be an insult to Brother Malcolm for us to wait for the government to authorize a holiday in his honor. It would be more fitting if we exercised some self-determination and declared May 19th, the day of Malcolm's birth, an official holiday for us. Black August. Black August is a growing phenomenon originally created to spotlight the self-determination struggles of black incarcerated freedom fighters. It was expanded to be much more. And emphasizing the value of honoring the humanity of all opens the door for this annual commemoration, not celebration, to grow even more and for the treatment of the incarcerated to improve. Black History Month. By making Black History Month about living the values of lifelong learning, ancestor veneration, and service, just by doing that, we've moved it away from what it has been for far too many K-12 children for far too long. A few days in February, when they do a trite surface review of what Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, and Malcolm X were about, that hasn't worked. That has been ineffective and downright criminal. The value of lifelong learning would push both teachers and students parents and children to go deeper than the fact that Martin Luther King had a dream. It would push them to also go beyond Martin Luther King, beyond the men of the civil rights movement. There were sisters without whom there would have been no civil rights movement, and beyond our history within the confines of America. By making ancestor veneration a key value of this month, we are moved to find out who those game-changing ancestors were. By making service a fundamental value, we spotlight both the contribution made to our story over the centuries, but we also confront the roadblocks and setbacks that folk had to face and overcome. Doing that makes our history and the people who made it more real and more relatable. 
Marcus Garvey Day. What we said about Brother Malcolm, we could say about the Honorable Marcus Messiah Garvey. And more, Garvey created the largest Pan-African movement in the history of the world and was so effective at stirring up the people that the Western world's biggest powers had to collaborate and conspire to attempt to destroy the man and the movement. But even after the U.S. deported Garvey on bogus charges, he continued to lead the movement for Africa for Africans at home and abroad. Garvey is arguably the greatest race leader black folk have ever had, yet he is still one of the least known. The day of his birth, August 17th, should be claimed by us as a national black pan-African holiday to teach and learn about Garvey and all he stood for. That was the op-ed piece, Why Black Folk Need Holidays. It was written by Aswad Walker and appeared in the Baltimore Afro-Americans Afro.com website on June 15th, 2023. My next reading is from the Community Voice newspaper and it's July 7th, 2023 edition. The title is Nicodemus' homecoming tradition continues July 27th through 30th. It was written by the Voice staff. The 145th Nicodemus' homecoming emancipation celebration, originally held to mark the emancipation of slaves from the West Indies, has been celebrated continuously since 1878 and draws together the descendants of Nicodemus and community supporters for a celebration attracting up to a thousand people. Held traditionally the last weekend in July, This year's celebration is slated for July 27th through the 30th. The three-day event features a parade, the Buffalo Soldiers Cavalry, a 5K run, children's activities, a pancake breakfast, music in the park, vintage baseball, and dances. Thursday's opening day is set aside for the annual meetings of the Nicodemus Homecoming and Nicodemus Historical Society and an early arrivals reception. Nicodemus, Established in 1877, was founded shortly after the Civil War by formerly enslaved African Americans from Kentucky. Like so many other small towns which were founded in the late 1800s, Nicodemus has lost most of its population but continues to exist, which lends itself to this year's celebration theme, From Perseverance to Preservation, The Legacy Continues. Today, the town site has about 30 residents, and its status as the last remaining all-black town west of the Mississippi River helped gain it recognition as a national park site. That was the article, Nicodemus' Homecoming Tradition Continues July 27th through the 30th. It was written by the staff of the Community Voice newspaper and was published July 7th, 2023. The next reading is titled, Stay or Go? Fate of Andrew Jackson statues at Kansas City Independence Courthouses up to voters. It was written by Robert A. Cronkleton and originally appeared in the Kansas City Star newspaper on July 12, 2023, but I'm reading a version that was reprinted at the Archimax.com website. That's A-R-C-A-M-A-X.com. Voters will once again decide the fate of two statues of U.S. President Andrew Jackson outside the Kansas City and Independence Courthouses after legislators took steps this week to resume efforts to remove them. In a 7-1 vote, Jackson County legislators approved a resolution at a meeting Monday to start the process to remove and store the statues of the county's namesake and install a statue of Harry S. Truman at the courthouse in downtown Kansas City. 
There are several procedural steps ahead before the statues can actually be removed. Caleb Clifford, chief of staff of the Jackson County Executive's Office, said in an email, The resolution calls for the issue to be placed before the voters on the November 2024 ballot. To do that, the legislature will need to pass an ordinance placing the issue on the ballot, he said. There's ample time, more than a year, for the necessary legislation to be crafted and ratified, Clifford said. The resolution, which was introduced by Democrat Manuel Abarca IV, 1st District, in June, is the latest effort to remove the monuments because of Jackson's history as a slave owner and his support of forcefully removing Native Americans from their land. The question to remove them was put to a vote in 2020, despite opposition from black county leaders who wanted to remove them with legislation. The effort failed when 59% of voters favored keeping them up. Plaques were added in 2021, noting that Jackson County was named for Jackson by Missouri lawmakers three years before he was elected as president. Jackson County Prosecutor Gene Peters Baker had proposed in 2019 installing plaques next to both statues outlining Jackson's controversial past. Their installation was delayed for the public vote on whether the statue should be taken down. The statue has stood outside the north entrance of the courthouse in Kansas City since the building opened in 1934. That was the article, Stay or Go, Fate of Andrew Jackson Statues at Kansas City, Independence Courthouse is Up to Voters. It was written by Robert A. Cronkleton, published July 12, 2023, in the Kansas City Star, but I read the edition that was reprinted at the Archimax.com website. My next reading is a book review that takes a look at African Americans from a Black British point of view. The title is This Is Not America by Tomiwa Owolade, A British Take on Black Identity. It was written by Cy Martin and was published July 6, 2023 at the Guardian and Observer website at theguardian.com. The term cultural cringe makes an early appearance in Tomiwa Owolade's This Is Not America. Capital T-O-M-I-W-A, capital O-W-O, L-A-D-E. Coined by the Australian critic A.A. Phillips to express the fawning relationship of some of his fellow citizens to traditional British culture, Owolade believes it applies to the attitudes of many contemporary Britons towards the U.S. America is often accepted as the primary shaper of truths. Its landscapes, myths, and histories can seem closer to us than our own. Like it or not, we're all, to some degree, in its thrall. Black British people are even greater consumers of American ideas than other demographic groups. African-American culture is often down neat and uncritically. Its vision of a seemingly coherent community with an identifiable middle class, centuries of blood in the soil, and racial solidarity goes some way to assuaging the familiar rootless condition described by the author Joan Riley as the unbelonging. African-American experiences inform our lives and have come to underpin our dialogues around identity. They are central to what it means to be a Black in Britain today. But how appropriate or helpful is it to play this subaltern role? Owolati hits the ground running with some well-aimed attacks on the unfiltered transfusion of American standards and values into British media and academia. He is good at picking apart lazy language and impractical acronyms. To whom would the I in biopic, Black, Indigenous, and People of Color, logically refer in a British context? 
Comparing the historical Black experience in both countries, Awolati demonstrates how African-American opinions and positions forged in the harsher racial climate of the U.S. failed to correspond to the experiences of Black people in Streatham or Stranraer. Awolati is British of Nigerian origin and is cognizant of the fact that Black Britons, unlike African-Americans, have extremely diverse perspectives. In his own case, his unbroken connection to the African continent means that he can only relate secondhand to the experiences of enslavement and white supremacy that are central to the lives of those with Caribbean backgrounds. Flowing through this book is an acknowledgement that demographic change will affect black identities more than any attachment to American culture. Those of African heritage have comprised the majority of black British people for more than two decades now. African Caribbeans are now a minority within a minority. The baton has been passed. What could this mean for the teaching of black history? What might a black politics that does not necessarily center the legacies of the slave trade look like? Awolati decries some responses to the murder of George Floyd. American-style affirmative action in education is anathema to him. It would not be unfair to align him with Kimi Badenoch, Kwasi Kwarteng, or Bim Afalami, all prominent African-British conservatives unlikely to subscribe to progressive ideas imported from the U.S. But the fact that Owolati does not credit Britain as an independent side of Black revolutionary thought and practice is a major omission. Black writers and activists of the late 18th, 19th, and early 20th centuries shaped the abolition movement and also later pan-Africanism. How are the opinions of Kugano? Robert Wedderburn or Theophilus Scholes, not foundational to any analysis of black British thought. Despite occasionally acknowledging imperialism and ongoing structural racism, Awolade somehow manages to conclude that, ultimately, it is only by accepting the fact that black British people are already integrated into British society that we can build an effective form of anti-racist politics. But matrix by which this integration could be demonstrated are unclear. This is not America is ultimately an attempt to redefine black British identities by placing them inside the framework of broader British culture. According to Owolade, black Britons share more in common with Britons of other backgrounds than with black people in other parts of the world. In order to make this point, he seeks to define those areas of national experience where values converge. He lists sport, music, and Christianity. Could there be a more American trifecta? Interestingly, the youth lingua franca, multicultural London English, is heralded as a positive and uniting influence. I'm curious to know how that particular cultural touchstone would be received in broader conservative circles. Obolali's book is a timely exploration of difficult questions. Proudly unorthodox, sometimes provocative, it has the merit of engaging even when it enrages. That was a review of the book, This Is Not America, Why Black Lives in Britain Matter by Tomiwa Owolade. It was published July 6, 2023, was written by S.I. Martin, and it appeared at The Guardian website. My next reading is titled, Journal Highlights Contributions of Black Psychologists. I found this at the American Psychological Association's APA.org website, and it was written by Jim Sliwa and published July 5, 2023. 
Despite historical strides and the important perspectives black psychological researchers offer to their field, the contributions of black psychologists have been left out of many foundational teachings in psychology, according to the journal American Psychologist. A special issue of the journal aims to rectify these oversights by highlighting the significant contributions of black scholars in psychology in related fields. The contributions of black scholars to psychology have been erased or marginalized within mainstream U.S.-centered psychology, said Fanita Tyrell, Ph.D., an assistant professor of psychology at the University of Maryland, who guest edited the special issue. As such, psychologists and trainees have little exposure to strengths-based theories and schools of thought that center and humanize the experiences of people of African descent. Other guest editors were Helen Neville of the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, Jose Casadias of Arizona State University, Kevin Coakley of the University of Michigan, and Carlin Adams-Wiggins of Portland State University. The aim of this special issue is to curate, review, and integrate innovative and foundational contributions by Black psychologists who study and conduct research on race, ethnicity, culture, and racism that center on the experiences of people of African descent, said Tyrell. We hope it will help stimulate a dialogue about how we can change academia and science to better represent a diversity of voices. Among the articles in the special issue are James S. Jackson and the Program for Research on Black Americans, Contributions to Psychology and the Social Sciences. The lead authors were Linda Chatters, Ph.D., and Robert Joseph Taylor, Ph.D. As founder and director of the Program for Research on Black Americans, social psychologist James S. Jackson made many significant and lasting contributions to the discipline of psychology, his groundbreaking work emphasizing the importance of exploring within group diversity pushed back against stereotypical depictions of Black life to develop a body of empirical knowledge that revealed the richness and depth of the lives of Black Americans. Jackson's work furthered understanding of stress and coping processes and the impacts of racism and discrimination on the health and well-being of Black Americans. This article provides a retrospective on Jackson's contributions. The next summary of an article is titled Contributions of African-Centered, Afrocentric Psychology, a Call for Inclusion in APA-Accredited Graduate Psychology Program Curriculum. The lead authors were Olafunke Awasogba, Ph.D. of the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center, and Stacy Jackson, Ph.D. at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. African-centered psychology predates the American Western theories and treatment modalities that predominate in clinical graduate training. The authors of this article propose that a psychological school of thought in which Black people are understood from a healthy, strengths-based perspective should be included in the standard curriculum for APA-accredited graduate programs. This article provides an overview of African-centered psychology as a school of thought with distinguished Black scholars who have contributed to its theory, research, and praxis. The next article is titled, Spencer's Phenomenological Variant of Ecological Systems Theory, PVEST, Charting Its Origin and Impact. The lead authors were Michael Cunningham, Ph.D., and Samantha Francois, Ph.D., both of Tulane University. The research of Margaret Beale Spencer, Ph.D., replicated and extended the contextual understanding of Black children's identity and self-esteem, originally put forth by psychologist Kenneth Clark, Ph.D., and Mamie Clark, Ph.D. 
This paper reports on findings from Spencer's research that have shaped the behavioral science fields. The theoretical perspective she developed has been influential in how individuals design their research questions and intervention programs. The next article is titled Amplifying Black Excellence in Industrial Organizational Psychology by Enrica Ruggs, Ph.D., Horatio Trailer, Bachelor of Science, and Larissa Garcia of the University of Houston. This article highlights the contributions of five black industrial organizational psychologists who have significantly influenced the field through scholarship, mentorship, practice, and service. The article aims to bring awareness to their work and provide a practical guide for others in industrial organizational psychology and psychology broadly to help improve scientific contributions by considering diversity and inclusion implications and improving mentoring of black graduate students. The American Psychological Association, which publishes American Psychologists, issued an apology in October 2021. Acknowledging that the APA failed in its role in leading the discipline of psychology and was complicit in contributing to systemic inequities and hurt many through racism, racial discrimination, and denigration of communities of color, thereby falling short on its mission to benefit society and improve lives. The APA also adopted two additional resolutions, one delineating APA's and psychology's role going forward in dismantling systemic racism in the United States, and the other pledging to work to advance health equity in psychology. Despite these important steps, much work is still needed to overcome the history of racism in psychology and the lack of recognition and representation of black scholars and scholarship in mainstream psychology, according to Tyrell. She hopes the special issue will serve as an example and springboard for other disciplines within the social and behavioral sciences to dedicate space to celebrate their black scholars. That was the article. Journal highlights contributions of black psychologists. This appeared at the American Psychological Association's APA.org website. It was written by Jim Sliwa and was published July 5th, 2023. Next is a reading about personal finances. The title is Black Millennials Strive to Close the Investment Gap. This appeared in the Baltimore Afro-American and its Afro.com website. It was written by Laura Onyeneho, capital O-N-Y-E-N-E-H-O, and was published July 11, 2023. Angel McDonald's financial education began when she learned that acquiring a degree and getting a good job earned her just enough money to live paycheck to paycheck. With student loans, personal loans, and a car loan hanging over her head, McDonald quickly realized she needed to create a strategy to live a life of financial independence. Now, as a successful management consultant for an IT consulting firm in Houston, McDonald can happily reflect on getting kicked out of college, enlisting in the military, going back to college, and eventually building a six-figure net worth by her early 30s. I remember when I first entered into consulting and I was conversing with my black counterparts who were living paycheck to paycheck versus the conversations I had with white people who were talking about vacation homes, McDonald said. It was unfortunate for me to be in a space and feeling like I was way behind my peers in my knowledge of finances. We went to school, got the job, got the income, but what's the missing link? Many young black millennials like McDonald transitioned into adulthood during periods of economic instability, tight labor markets, and slow wages shaped by the Great Recession of 2007 and the COVID-19 recession in 2020. 
According to a 2019 Federal Reserve survey, white families have a median wealth of $188,000 compared to $36,000 for Hispanic families and just $24,000 for black families. For this look at the most typical household within each race group, Wealth is defined as the difference between the family's gross assets, which includes holdings like real estate and stock portfolios, and their liabilities or debt. A recent economic analysis by Deloitte found that, on average, white households added $34,000 to their median real wealth between 2010 and 2019, while Hispanic households added $17,000 and black households only $5,300. Deloitte's analysis also found that millennials in Generation Z households have higher incomes but lower wealth relative to similarly aged Gen Xers and baby boomers. It turns out that millennials' real median net worth was only $13,900 in 2019, compared to $19,200 for similarly aged Gen Xers in 2004 and $15,600 for baby boomers in 1989. Essentially, black millennials exist at the intersection of both race and age-related wealth gaps. It's a tough time for young people to invest in retirement strategies fully, said Daniel Harvey, a professor of finance and director of the financial planning program at Prairie View A&M University. The rise of the gig economy means that some workers don't have access to employer-sponsored retirement accounts, and they might also be dealing with racial disparities in student loan debt. Not only are black millennials drowning in debt, but it's also becoming a challenge to prioritize money to invest, Harvey said. The key to conquering this starts with financial literacy. Harvey also said that likely because of mistrust, young people might be less interested in investing assets in traditional methods such as 401k plans to build wealth because they are usually the first people in their families to provide real financial stability. As a result, there is a sense of responsibility to take care of family financial burdens rather than the individual. I never really learned anything about credit until college. My mother was too afraid of debt. I learned early on that if you can't afford it, then don't buy it. But it wasn't until I got accepted into college that I realized my mother didn't have enough money saved for me to go. After getting kicked out of school, entering the Air National Guard, enrolling back to college and entering the workforce, I needed a strategy for an abundant life. She started her journey to financial independence by being frugal and prioritizing savings and investments. Her goal is to retire early and live off small withdrawals from accumulated accounts. Richard Bumbury was born in Guyana and moved to a low-income neighborhood in Brooklyn. As a child, he didn't understand what it meant to have wealth because of his environment. Images of black wealth appeared exclusive to athletes and entertainers. It wasn't until late into his adulthood that he discovered how to build wealth. He is now a six-figure earning software engineer, and he did so without a college degree. I taught myself how to write software while working full-time at a job I didn't like, Bumberry said. I woke up at 3 a.m. every day and studied between three to four hours before going to work, but it was what I had to do to get out of my economic situation. I didn't go to college because my family couldn't afford it and I didn't want to burden my parents. I didn't know of financial aid opportunities, so I skipped that part and went straight to work. It took him a year and a half of studying before he quit his job and began working in tech full-time. 
His big financial break came when he was introduced to restricted stock units, RSUs, while working as a software engineer at a tech company. RSUs are a form of stock-based compensation that some employers might provide as a benefit to their employees. This is the first time somebody is giving me access to more than just paying me money for the time I work. They are also giving me an asset that can grow. If you can use it correctly, it can turn into generational wealth, Bumbury said. My struggle at that point was no one in my circle knew what RSUs were, and I didn't have enough financial literacy to understand the best way to leverage these tools. Bumbury said his aha moment motivated him to start building a tech startup that serves as an alternative to the stock exchange and helps eliminate the wealth gap. The goal is to meet people where they are and create an easily understandable financial market for economically underrepresented or under-resourced groups using entertainment and pop culture. He also believes that with job hopping becoming a norm, The expectation to work a certain number of years at a company to enjoy retirement savings later in life isn't the mentality of millennials today. Many young people now don't want to wait until they're 60 to enjoy the lifestyle they want, Bumbury said. I think the system is broken and we need a new one. That's why I'm working to create something different. Meanwhile, McDonald is on a journey to help others as the founder of a personal finance blog. As a money coach, she helps millennials and Generation Z professionals save, invest, and develop strategies for financial independence. For long-term wealth, McDonald's suggests starting with the fundamentals. Create a budget, build a three- to six-month emergency fund, automate expenses, and invest in employer-sponsored and individual retirement accounts. Harvey agrees. He recommends that people first understand their short and long-term goals and list their assets, liabilities, expenses, and cash flow. Next, he recommends they evaluate their risk profile and willingness to take risk and have adequate savings and insurance on necessities, including home, health, and vehicle in case of losses. Finally, he recommends that people seek a professional financial advisor for additional support. Knowledge is your best protection. Understand your goals and your risk profile, he said. Before you can invest, you need to set yourself up for success. That was the article titled, Black Millennials Strive to Close the Investment Gap. It was written by Laura Onyanejo and appeared at the Baltimore Afro-Americans Afro.com website on July 11, 2023. I'm going to conclude today's program with a book review from the KirkusReviews.com website. The title of the book that's being reviewed is Promise. The title of the article is Rachel Eliza Griffiths Comes Into Her Inheritance. It was written by Kristen Evans and published July 5th, 2023. Before her marriage to Salman Rushdie in 2021, Before publishing five celebrated books of poetry, before debuting as a fiction writer at age 45, Rachel Eliza Griffiths typed in earnest on a sky-blue Smith Corona at her childhood home in Delaware. I was 10 or 11 years old, and those hammers banged away. That was one of the most blissed-out spaces for me growing up, says Griffiths, during a Zoom call from the United Kingdom. She is there to work with her British publisher on that fiction debut, Promise which follows Black sisters Hyacinth and Ezra Kindred as they come of age in northern Maine at the height of the Civil Rights Movement. Narrated by Cynthia, 
The novel examines the perils and pleasures of black girlhood in the increasingly hostile village of Salt Point. Danger is everywhere in Promise, from the sheriff who mimes shooting the Kindred family from the window of his police cruiser to the school teacher who snubs her black students in order to elevate the white ones. For Griffiths, the origins of Promise are rooted in wanting to understand what it would have felt like for someone her mother's age to grow up in New England in the late 1950s. I wanted to write a love letter, particularly to the space of black girlhood, she says. I wanted to think about the world when my mother grew up, and she was born in 1954, Griffith adds. What would she have been told as a girl about how to be a woman? How to have an imagination? How to give herself permission? How to have an inner life? Even as the violence in Salt Point worsens, Cynthia's parents and their family friends, the Junkets, go to great lengths to instill joy, pride, and love in their daughters. The North is so often thought of as freedom, Griffiths explains, but there are quite a lot of pockets in the North where that is not the case. I wanted to have a story where the sisters grow up in a home that has been happy, has nurtured them through reading and cooking and nature, through their imaginations. Griffith adds, I don't believe that the Kindreds are resilient because they suffer. They're resilient because they know how to love. And I feel like in my own personal life, resilience comes from a very deep centering of joy and wonder and imagination and action and agency and accountability. While researching Promise, Griffiths turns to novelists like Ralph Ellison and James Baldwin for inspiration since they lived and wrote through the same time period. But it was Zora Neale Hurston's work that helped Griffiths tap into the interiority she most wanted to capture. I was very struck by a scene in Their Eyes Were Watching God that I just found devastating, she says. Griffiths describes an exchange between the protagonist, Janie, and her grandmother who tells her, You know, you can never be the flower. You're going to be the mule. Don't think for a moment that you can be vulnerable in this world. This scene both propelled Griffiths back to her own childhood and became an organizing principle for the themes and promise. That happened to me often growing up. Where at a certain time in vulnerability or sweetness, our mothers or aunties or grandmothers or teachers would say the stereotype of the young black woman. She can't be depressed. She can't be anxious. She can't just be tired. She's got to hold it all together. Well, what does that do over generations, you know? Promise is in many ways haunted by the same idea of inheritance, for better and for worse. Cynthia's family migrates north because a horrifying act of terror destroys their home in a black settlement. The memory informs the decisions Cynthia's parents, especially her father, make to keep the family safe. Late in the novel, Cynthia has a conversation with her grandmother, Jenny, as they struggle to process new grief together. We can pass hurt, same as we can pass new life, Jenny tells her granddaughter. The line doesn't just evoke the scene in their eyes were watching God that inspired Griffiths. In a way, it also serves as a thesis Griffiths has developed throughout her career in every medium she has mastered. My main subject is, in a way, myself. It's black women and these other narrative possibilities for joy, for being soft, for being ill, for being strong, she says. And that all these things can be true at the same time. Although Griffiths earned her MFA in fiction at Sarah Lawrence College, she found success first with poetry, then photography. Her black and white portraits of other poets are particularly striking, mysterious, evocative, 
variously draped in shadow or bathed in crystalline light. Documentary self-portraits fill her last collection, the award-winning Seeing the Body in which she processes the grief of her mother's death. That collection also opened a portal for Griffiths to finally begin writing fiction for publication. I don't think I was really ready until my mother died, says Griffiths. That's when I was like, you write a novel or you never write a novel. Time's up for you. You have the chops now and you've gone through quite a bit to really trust yourself as a fiction writer. I took that very seriously, she adds. To finish writing Promise, it seems Griffiths also had to invite the joyful, creative abandon of her 10-year-old self sitting at her typewriter back into the room. So much of that energy is in my book, she says. For a moment, she reflects on what it means to publish her first book of fiction now after so many years of working in other genres and media. I'm a debut novelist. I'm terrified. It's also such an amazing thing to start over, and I feel like I'm starting over, she says. As for the novel's long genesis, it arrived on time. I think it was better not to push it and to be the age I am now, where I know my voice and I know that it changes. That was the article, Rachel Eliza Griffiths Comes Into Her Inheritance. It was written by Kristen Evans and published July 5, 2023 at the KirkusReviews.com website. That's all for this week. If you would like to hear this show again or listen to past editions of the African American Hour, you can find them wherever you get your podcasts or at the Audio Reader Archives at reader.ku.edu. I'm Byron Buckner, and thank you for listening to the African American Hour. <laughs>